Our uh, scripture reading this morning will be from Philippians chapter 3, the first 11 verses. So if you'd like to follow along, I'll be reading in ASB, which is my translation. But anyway, Philippians chapter 3, the first 11 verses says, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To uh, Rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing again is no trouble to me, and it's a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, which is in the law, found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in the view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Let us pray. Father, we just thank you so much for this time to gather together. We thank you for your mercy, your grace, your love, your kindness. We thank you for being the great and wonderful God you are. Now I pray, Father, that you would guide us this morning, that you would help us to be sensitive to your Holy Spirit, that you would guide E.J. through worship and give him wisdom, Lord. Guide Jeff as he preaches and brings us your word, Lord, that you'd speak through him. I pray that you would help us to glorify you. And in all that we do this morning, Father, help us to be focused on you and give you all the glory, all the honor, and all the praise in Jesus' name. All right. Good morning, everybody. Uh, my name is Jeff Mkhitaryan. Um Some of you may know me. Some of you may not. To some of you, I may look like a face that looks a little familiar but has changed somewhat. And part of that's because... My wife and I originally were part of Calvary Bible Church, and uh, so I want to share with you just real briefly a little bit about our story there, because it's to us, it's such a blessing for me to have a chance to be able to be up here with you guys today and to be able to share, because my story, God's story in my life started here, in the body of Christ here at Calvary Bible Church. When I was uh, in college, in about my fourth or fifth year, I was kind of on the long-term plan. <laughs> um, I was kind of in a rough place in my life. I was kind of in a tailspin and wrecking my life and destroying everybody around me. And uh, had a friend that kept inviting me to this group of folks that met in a home in Huntsville, a bunch of young, young adults, college and single folks. And so it was this group from this church he'd been visiting. And so one day I couldn't, I just couldn't get out of one of his invitations. I couldn't find an excuse to get away. And so I, I gave in to it. Because I was, I was actually a little curious because I didn't grow up churched. My family don't know Jesus. And as far back as you can see, there are no Christians in my, my kind of ancestry. Um, and so that was unfamiliar to me. So I just moved to Huntsville. I thought, what do people do at church even? So here was this chance to do something even more different was to go to a home where a bunch of young people got together to talk about the Lord. And I thought, okay, this is different. So accepted the invitation and went with him and walked to an, into a little bitty house filled with about 40 people all jammed in there, worshiping the Lord with guitars and shares, talking through the scriptures and sharing life together and praying for one another. And I thought, what in the world is this all about? And I was stunned and I was stopped in my tracks because one of the things in my life I really craved was relationship. And one of the things I witnessed in that, that college and singles ministry at that time was just a group of people that not only loved me, the rough guy that I was to be around, but I observed them love one another. 
And it really echoed that thing that Jesus talked about when he said that, you know, you'll know, they'll know you're my disciples by the love you have for one another. And it was that love of the body of Christ that was the extension of Calvary that is what opened me to the gospel and led to me coming to Jesus. And it was in the, <laughs> amen, right. And so, and then in the years that followed, was one of the greatest discipleship experiences that I'd have, that I still look back to and see it was one of the most powerful in my life. Of growing how to study the scriptures, learn how to share the gospel with others, doing life with, with one another, just kind of in an organic, relational way, just growing in the Lord together. And it was actually the kind of the catalyst that God used to put me where I am here today. Um, uh, for for many years, uh, for about 25 years, I was, was a technical writer out in the engineering community and doing ministry, which was really my passion and what I felt like God had made my purpose. I was doing it on the side. We were doing lots of discipleship and small groups and working with church plants and local churches and any opportunity we had to do ministry, we did. But God hadn't opened the door and so about seven years ago, God opened the door for us to be able to go full-time and do what we've been doing for those 25 years. So we, we now I'm a director of a ministry here in Huntsville called Life on Life. And primarily it's focused on discipling men, equipping them, helping them grow in their identity in Christ, growing as leaders, developing real gospel community together and kind of helping them discover, as God had shown me, what did I make you for? And so it was just, as I look back now, to now be back here at Calvary, a part of you guys, a part of this body, it's just something I love I celebrate. Because this is where it all started, where God really stole my heart and took hold of me and brought me to Jesus. So it's great to be here with you guys. Um, today I want to kind of talk about, we're going to talk through this uh, passage in the first part of Philippians. Um, now, often in the Christian life, um, even before the Christian life, people have a certain perspective towards who God is and how we, how we relate to Him. And even once we enter into the Christian life, people have different pictures of how they relate to God. Unfortunately, often not always based on what the truth is. Some of us um, are out in the world and wandering like I was. Um, many people have grown up kind of watching Kind of learning about God, going to church, but really haven't learned what it means to enter into relationship with Him. So they're busy trying to do the right things and to impress God and to please God and to make themselves worthy enough to be accepted by Him and to somehow go to heaven. And then there are some that, that, that think that they're performing so well that God's pleased to have them come to heaven, <laughs> to have them come to heaven and be with Him. Um, now, when, well, what I'm primarily talking about this morning, though, is us. Is where are we? Because often in our relationship with God, we too can miss the picture of what it means to be in relationship with God. It's easy to think that relationship with God is based on, God, how well I perform, how well I do, how pleased you are with me at that moment. And it's not based on the relationships, it's based on how well I'm doing to prove to you, God, that I'm worthy to be in, to be before you. Some of us have a, have a, a mindset that we're working really hard trying to, trying to do all the right things, going through all the right motions to, to prove to God that, that we're worthy to be in Him. Some of us have sort of almost accepted failure, trying so hard and are so exhausted, thinking, how do I please this unpleasable God? And one of the things that, that, that Paul does so beautifully in the book of Philippians is invites us into this new picture. And that's what I want to do this morning, is help, help us to kind of take hold, maybe in a fresh way. I don't know where, where each one of you is. You may be at a different place in your walk with Christ, you may be enjoying your relationship with Him and the, the freedom and the role and the intimacy with Him. You may be one who has just gone through the gone through the motions of going to church your whole life, and and you've been kind of maybe religious. 
Um, maybe you've really never met Jesus personally and, and you're, you're curious now. What, what does it mean to really know Christ? What does it mean to be in relationship with God? And so this morning what I want to do is explore that very picture of moving beyond the, the junk that we attach to Christianity and to our walk and take it down to the pure and simple, the relationship with Jesus himself. So that maybe, maybe at the end we might be encouraged to enjoy him more. And when we spend time with him, not feel so unworthy, maybe we will walk and be able to receive his love and his grace and feel his sense of pleasure with us and sense that he really wants to know us and wants to be wants, wants us to experience his closeness. Often you'll hear people say, I just want to feel close to God. You know, the funny thing is, is if we're in Christ, he can't get any closer. <laughs> it's really not him who's far away. Usually it's the affections of our heart that are going in different directions. And so one thing we're going to focus on today is talking about how, you know, the scriptures speak to this whole concept of the law, the Old Testament law. And to put that into more contemporary words, I want to talk more, we'll, we'll talk about this idea of rules and standards, because many times that will, that's what we've done in the church. We've taken what happened in the Old Covenant through the law, and we've now made it what the Christian life looks like. And we create our own system of standards and rules that we live by, hoping to impress God with, with how righteous we are. And so, we're going to talk about this idea of this thing called the flesh. Now, sometimes that's sort of an elusive term. And in general, when, when we refer to the flesh, when the scriptures speak to it, it's really just our, our attempts in our lives to live independent from God, to find our own strategies, to get our needs met apart from God. And, you know, let's face it, before we knew Jesus, we had no other option. But the beauty is now... We have a Holy Spirit who's taking care of that force. We have this indwelling presence. We're now united with Christ. And we don't have to live under that system of standards anymore. We're now received this free gift. Now, there's a, there's a passage out of uh, Colossians 1 that says, that says this. It says, Just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in Him. Rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith that you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. Now, what that, what that verse communicates to me is that just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, how do we receive him as, as Lord? By grace, through faith. He says, continue to live in him. So how does that mean we live the Christian life? By grace, through faith. And then really the only response to that, because God is doing all the work, is our thankfulness for what he's doing. He's saying staying rooted, and that means at all times we're completely established in him, in this truth that it's all him and not us. Now, this this idea of living by grace through faith was us in this beautiful way, with Jesus when he came into, came into the world, right? He exercised and demonstrated this incredible dependence, right? He surrendered that, the, the fact that he was God, even though he stayed fully God and fully man, he chose to move himself towards complete dependence on the Father. And that demonstrates to us that in the power of the Spirit, just as the Spirit came upon him in his baptism, we too have this Holy Spirit that lives in us that enables us to live the Christian life fully dependent on Him. You know, there's only one person in the world that can live the Christian life. Do you know that? Just one. His name is Jesus. And the reason why that is, is He really is the only one that can stand before Him. That's why we in His righteousness, as we say, stand before Him too. But... The beauty of what God accomplished for us at the cross and the resurrection is now we have a Savior living in us. Take a look with me at Galatians 2.20. I know you're familiar with this passage. I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 
I do not set aside the grace of God for if righteousness could be gained through the law, then Christ died for nothing. So what is that saying? I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. I'm now his. I died and I was raised with him, united with him. My life is his now. And that's how I live now, fully dependent, fully empowered. The real picture is just Christ living in me. In fact, and throw out kind of a concept maybe I haven't really thought of before. Often when we think about the Christian life, we think it's really all about just managing our sin. You ever think about it that way? Often that's how we live the Christian life. We just think, how do I stay out of trouble with God? Or how do I make Him happy? Right? And But that's not the economy that we're living under through the resurrection of Christ. Because... He doesn't want us to focus our, our minds on our sin, right? Why, why is that? It's because Romans says we're dead to sin and we're alive to God. Think about that. If I'm dead to sin, why am I obsessed with it? Now, I'm not struggling with sin. We're still contending with the flesh and the spirit in us. But, but this sin thing, Jesus said, I took over its mastery. It's, a, it's, it's, it's conquered. Don't let it rule you anymore. What I want you to learn how to do now is live the life, right? He said, I came to have life, the abundant life, Christ's life himself in us. And so at its key, what he's also inviting us into there is this picture of relationship with him. So that we don't get focused on the sin in our life. When we operate out the resources and the righteousness that he's given us, we're experiencing his life, and sin doesn't become a factor. The, ch- the challenge is, is most of us haven't learned how to walk that out in relationship, how to set our minds on things above, how to fix our eyes, all the things that God said, where to put our thoughts and our minds, and where to invest ourselves. But it's really at its courts in this relationship. Some of us look at the Christian and we're walking through it kind of dutifully, Right? We're going through motions, we'll serve here, we'll serve there. We're not really happy about it, maybe. Maybe we're just doing it because we're good and faithful, and that's really commendable. But, but what's, what's amazing is when someone operates in the, when God is moving through them to use them in the way that he created them for, and that they're serving not because they're trying to prove or, or it's because, well, I guess I should, or it's the right thing to do. The reason we serve the Lord is because we get to. It's an honor. It's a privilege. Because we've been freed from that, from that, those, that grip of having to perform, now we can just enjoy it. We can operate freely and serve freely out of a love that's secure, of a relationship that's secure. Now today we're going to talk about this this passage that Paul's talking about in Philippians is about the Judaizers. And so we're going to take some time and move through that, talking about these, these, these Jews that were trying to put the Gentiles under their Jewish law, and principally in circumcision, and saying the only way you can be saved is if you follow this law. So what they were doing was, mixing their Judaism with this new covenant. The problem is, is they're not compatible. There's, there's, the, the, there's the old law that they were under, the Jews were under, but when Christ came, he did away with it. And then we, we entered into a new place, a new covenant of grace, which is so much better. It's so much better because it's life-giving. And it goes beyond just not sinning. It doesn't stop there. It goes on to bearing fruit and bringing glory to God in our lives with Christ living through us where we can see Him actually do things. It's not just staying out of trouble. And that's what's so beautiful about the gospel. That's the resurrection life that we have. It says in Galatians, Paul, Paul challenged this in them, and he had some pretty strong words. If you remember in the book of Galatians, he said, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourself be burned again by the yoke of slavery. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. He's saying... This is not, in fact, if you remember, 
He said in the first chapter of Galatians, he said, if anyone is proclaiming gospel to you other than one you've already heard from us, let him be eternally condemned. That's pretty strong words. But he's serious about the gospel. He's saying you can't mix grace with the law. You can't mix the old covenant and the new covenant. The new covenant's better. Let's live in it. He's saying, and don't drag, and the leaders, the Jews were trying to drag people down into this. Now let's, let's go ahead and start. We're going to travel through this, this, uh, first 11 verses of Philippians. And, um, we're going to start with taking a look at, uh, verse 1. He says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again as a safeguard for you. He says, rejoice in the Lord. Isn't that something? You know, now we hear that and we're used to hearing it. We read it in the scriptures and we hear all about it. Now for Paul to say that himself is a pretty powerful thing because if you think about it, he's saying this, writing a letter while he's under house arrest. He's in chains. And he sees those as leverage for the gospel of Christ. But, and as you, if you've looked in, if you've ever read, I'm not going to read it for you, it's a long passage out of 2 Corinthians 11. He talks about this long place of suffering that he experienced of, of being persecuted and imprisoned and tortured and without food and running for his life and all these things on and on. We see that in many places in Paul. And it's all over the, the New Testament letters. But in the middle of that, what does he say? Let's rejoice. And he's rejoicing right in the middle of it. And that communicates something to us. Because it says to us that circumstances don't dictate my joy. And isn't that, isn't that, isn't that wonderful? Happiness is conditional, but, but my joy is not based on circumstance. In fact, one author, Skip Heisig, says this. He said, Paul traded a list of accomplishments, which we'll talk about in a minute, for a list of afflictions. <laughs> How's that for a career move, right? <laughs> you're at the top of the class, now we're, you're going to the place of suffering. And that's what Christ, and, and we're thinking, how can, how can we be invited into something and rejoice? Well, he showed us how. Well, then he says, you know, I'm, I'm going to say these same things. Now, we don't know exactly what he's referring to. Right here in this passage, what he's pointing to and saying the same things. But we do know one thing, that God, God wants us to be the kind of people that, that continue to encourage and remind one another of the truth. In fact, in, in the book of Hebrews, he's in, in chapter 3, he says, See to your brothers that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily... As long as it's called today, so none of you may be hardened by the sin's deceitfulness. God seems to think that we need daily encouragement from one another. Now, that's pretty hard to do. Now, I've got a brother who came visit this morning who's a really good, my brother Otto over here. He's the kind of guy that you'll get that random text from during the day that just kind of says, Hey, I'm thinking about you. I'm praying for you. Just kind of comes to mind. I love that because it's such an easy thing to do. To encourage wearing. God is saying, sin, what does it, what does it say in Genesis? Sin is crouching at your door. It's desirous for you. And God is saying, we need to remind of each other of what is true. What is true about God, what is true about us through Christ. He wants to remind us to walk in that so that we will be deceived by sin. So he moves on into verse 2 and he says, Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. Now, ironically, the people he's talking about are these, are these Judaizers, these Jews. Now, um, this, he calls them their dogs, which is really funny concerning the fact that Jews actually, when they thought about the Gentiles, that's what they considered them. And when, when, it, and when the scriptures talk about dogs in this context, it's not talking about our, our sweet puppies and pets. It's talking about the scavengers, those are nuisance. Those are, are not ones you want to mess with. These are dirty animals. And he's calling, now he's pointing at the Jews of saying, this is how I see you because of what you're doing. You're corrupting the gospel. And he says, these men who do evil... And as I said, as I, as I thought of what, what is Paul saying, I thought of that, that verse out of 
Galatians 1 that says, you know, let them be eternally condemned, those who are teaching this false gospel. And then he even moves into attacking this issue of the circumcision, calling it this mutilation of the flesh. He's saying, you're scarring up and cutting on people for no purpose, because it adds no value to their to, to the gospel, to their salvation. So then Paul turns the corner and he says, ah, but who, we're the true circumcision. Here's what he says. He says, for we are the true circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for such confidence. In, in Romans, he, he speaks this idea directly to the Jews when he's talking about this, this obsession with just having this outward sign. And he says, a man is not a Jew if he is one only outwardly. No circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly in circumcision, circumcision of the heart, by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a man's praise is not from men, but from God. He's saying it's circumcision, it's a transformed and changed heart, which can only happen by the Holy Spirit. It doesn't happen by marking your body or going through rules and standards. It comes from a transformation that occurs that God does in us. And he says there are three characteristics that echo that. One is, as he says, we worship by the Spirit of God. Worship, or the word is really served by the Spirit of God. So that's the Spirit-led, fruit-bearing kind of service. Not us trying real hard and not operating in the flesh. In fact, what is it, you know, earlier in Philippians he says, you know, says to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. It's God who's doing that. He's doing the work himself. And then the second thing he says that's a mark of some of the true circumstances is he, he glories in Christ Jesus or boasts in Christ Jesus. The Christ is exalted. The attention isn't given to me. He is the one that's exalted. Jeremiah says, let them, not the wise man boast of his wisdom, or the strong man boast of his strength, or the rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts boast about this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for in these I delight, declares the Lord. He delights in us knowing and understanding him. See all these things, and you think these are the things we tend to approach God with. You know, I thought the wise man. Think about Huntsville. What do we have? One of the highest per capita PhDs in the country. We're a place, we're a city full of a lot of smart folks. And it's easy to kind of let that get to our head and let it kind of elevate us and think that the value we bring. Or, as he says, our wealth or our strength, our influence. But he says, none of that counts for anything. What counts is knowing and understanding him so that he would be exalted in who he is. And then lastly, he says, put no confidence that there were people who put no confidence or trust in the flesh. You remember, our righteousness is filthy rags. The scriptures say the spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. In fact, in, in the book of Galatians, he talks about this when he refers to the Old Testament law. He said, hey, guys, if a law could have been given that could have granted life, there would have been one. But that wasn't the intent of that old covenant. It was to drive us to Jesus. Okay, so let's move on into Paul now. Now, Paul's saying, okay, well, if anybody's got great-looking flesh, I've got the best-looking flesh. Let me show you my resume. Um, let, me, let me show you what it, what it could look If anybody could prove that they could stand righteous before God, it's me. But I'm not even putting confidence in that. And, <coughs> excuse me, so here's what he says. If anyone else thinks he has reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the, peop- of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, and for legalistic righteousness, faultless. Now, <laughs> we know that he wasn't faultless. But I think he's talking in terms of the external exercise. His perception of his performance was pretty high. But what he's saying is, is, this is 
often how we, we rate ourselves, how we judge ourselves is based on what do I bring to the table? And two things are happening there. One is he's talking kind of about his heritage, something he has no control over, his family history. Then the other part is, is the part where he walked out being a good Jew and how, and how he performed that. And so what I want to do just real briefly is kind of go through those and talk about these, these different things that, that, that are manifest in, in, in us as we look at these things because th- these don't, we have struggled to relate to one of these things in a contemporary, mean a contemporary way. So the people of Israel, he was, he was born a Jew. So for us, maybe we were born in a Christian home. Or as one man I know put it, he said he was a Christian because he was born in America. Or born in the South. That was how, what he was trusting in for his relationship with God. The, the being circumcised on the eighth day, some people say, well, remember I was baptized as a baby. So that, so that makes me a Christian. Um, some say on the, uh, concerning the tribe of Benjamin, he's talking about now about their family legacy. We could say, I, I grew up in a Christian home. I was raised in a Christian home. We were in a prominent family. Maybe that's sometimes things that we'll point to of the family that we grew up in. He said the Hebrew of Hebrews, someone immersed in the culture, in the, in the language, in the lifestyle, learning the scriptures, the values, um, all, the, all the things that were just part of being part of the Jewish community. Paul said he did them all. Now for us, what might that look like? Maybe, hey, I go to church every Sunday. I'm part of the Christian community. I went to a Christian school, or maybe I was homeschooled, or, or maybe I even exercised the spiritual disciplines in a really consistent way. You know, let me just say a word about that. That is one thing that I really learned here from as a new Christian that I'm really thankful for, is learning how to walk out the spiritual disciplines about, about spending time in the Word of God, of, of praying, of sharing the gospel with others. And those things are incredibly powerful. But the thing we need to be careful about is sometimes we uphold the disciplines as spiritual life in the sense that we somehow get some leverage through that when it's not about covering territory or walking through the motions. It's about using those disciplines to to develop the relationship. They have a purpose. They're not an end in themselves. So he says in regard of fair to the law of Pharisees, which means the separated ones. And if you think about how the scriptures speak, we saw that in them. Um, uh, there was some commentary that said that the main emphasis of their teaching was ethical, not theological. So they were teaching people how to act. That they, that they believed God's grace was only extended to those who kept the law. Now think about that in regard to the gospel. So these guys were the teachers in the synagogues. They were seen as the examples for people to follow. And also this, the self-appointed guardians of the law and its proper observance. So they're going to tell you how to live. And so how does that look today? For us, maybe we're leaders who have influence. We think, well, I've taught Sunday school for all these decades, so that makes God happy with me, or he's pleased, or, or that's how I feel justified. Maybe it's that I hold some office. Maybe it's that, maybe it's being a parent that I've influenced on my kids and, and therefore that's how I, that's manifest. Um, Paul's, Paul's mentor, Gamaliel, if you, you remember him from the scriptures, was one of the staunch opponents of the church. And he was the one that was kind of fueling Paul with the stuff about persecuting the church. Um, and he was the person of influence in his life. Sometimes it's the person who sets standards for everybody else, even though they may not even be meeting them themselves. And then next there's the zeal, the, the zeal for persecuting the church. Sometimes I, I thought, well, what would that look like for us today? And I thought, well, it's easy for us to kind of elevate ourselves over others sometimes when, we're, when we speak critically or we're judgmental or we scrutinize others, um, whether it's people, whether it's churches or other denominations, we can take jabs thinking we're the real spiritual ones and saying it's not about that in our life. He says, he says, for I can testify about them, the Israelites, that they are zealous for God, 
But their zeal is not based on knowledge, since they do not know the righteous, the righteousness that comes from God and sought to establish their own. They did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the end of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. See, they sought to establish their own righteousness. Okay, and then the last one is this idea of the legalistic, this legalistic righteousness that Paul said was faultless. What well, I call this is good-looking flesh. He had really great-looking flesh. The best-performing religious flesh around. But let me, let me throw out this to you to think about. There are two kinds of flesh that we can struggle with as believers. One is the good-looking kind, which is the kind that performs well, that looks really pious and ethical and religious and really impressive. And then there's the bad-looking flesh, which kind of is offensive sometimes and is sinful and, fa- and struggles and fails and wrestles around. And, and the challenge is that neither, both of them are flesh. Neither of them better than the other because they're both empowered by me, not by God. And they're, the both of them, if you think about the struggle that we go through with them when we're walking out in the flesh, if I've got good looking flesh, I've got to strive to keep you impressed with me, right? Or to keep God impressed. If I've got bad looking flesh, I may just give up altogether. And if I don't give up, I'm just trying so hard just to get by, just to prove that I'm worthy. But it's still flesh. Both of them are flesh. So what are a few, I'm just going to go over these quickly. Um, so why is living under a system of rules and standards, why does that not work? Or the law, like what are some reasons why it really doesn't work? One is it's all about me and all depends on me. There's no room for God there. Number two, it lacks relationship. It made me think of the prodigal son. You remember the, 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 the son that ran away and then came back home and the father received him through a party. Remember, the brother got a little irritated and said, Hey, I'm still here. I didn't go squander your money. I've been busting my tail. He says, in fact, he says, I've been slaving for you and working for you. And you haven't even thrown me a goat to eat with my friends for a party. And what did his father say? He said, all I have is yours. You've always been with me. And I think that's the picture that God has for us. He's saying, all I have is yours. Now, the problem with that brother of the, of the prodigal son was that the brother was, a, was living like a slave, even though he was a son. You ever, can you relate to that sometimes when you think about your relationship with God? We see him as more someone who's a taskmaster instead of a father who just who loves us, enjoys us and receives us. And all he has for all he all of his, what he has is ours. OK, the next one, there's we, we operate under performance when we're doing rules and standards. The problem is, is how do I know I've performed well enough um, we can't please God because with, without faith it's impossible to please God. And when we operate under the flesh, we make matters worse. Why? Because we sin more. That's what the law does. That's what operating under rules and systems does. We're operating in the flesh. It actually incites sin. That's Romans 7 talks a good deal about that. That sin seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment put me to death. It wasn't, it's not that the law is bad, it's just not meant for life for us. It's meant to bring us to Christ, and it's done its work. And then, it also doesn't, it's not really me, because all I'm trying to do is project who I think you, you or God want to see, right? I'm putting on the mask of being the person that I think you expect me to be. Um, of course, then it's all external and then it diminishes, above all diminishes the, the cross of Christ. It undermines, says it wasn't enough. So what is, so what is then walking this out in the flesh then produce in us? Well, here's some things to think about and see if maybe, see if maybe any of this might sound familiar or uncomfortable for you. Pride and arrogance, superiority, judgmentalism, self in other words, self-righteousness. Is that something to struggle with? Death. How about condemnation? When we put ourselves under the standards and rules, that's the, in fact, the scriptures say that 
that the law was called the ministry of death, the ministry of condemnation. Because all it could do was accuse. That's all it was capable of doing. And But it says for us in Christ, there is no condemnation for us. Right? So if we're experiencing that, something's wrong. It means we're walking in, in the wrong, we're, we're walking in the wrong set of thinking. And then, of course, it, it results in exasperation and despair. Failure, more sin. As I said before, there was one pastor who talked about going through life, just busting his tail for Jesus, basically. And he said, if you were to ask me in an honest moment um, uh, what I really thought, I would say, come follow Jesus and be miserable like me. And sometimes that's what it can feel like, right? I'm just working hard for Jesus. And then, of course, it produces exhaustion because I'm trying so hard and I just don't know if I'm performing well enough. And, of course, it also creates this insecurity where where do I stand? Am I okay with God? Because, you know, I don't know if I've done enough. I don't know if he's happy with me now. And then this, this idea, again, of isolation from God and from others because no one really knows me. Um, John Lynch said this great, this great quote. He said, the problem with the mask that we put on to be who we think others want us to be or who God wants us to be, is he said, the mask gets all the love and we get nothing. Isn't that something? Isn't that really true? We perform when we perform for people, but then they don't really know who we are. And, of course, the hypocrisy in us is this picture that the behavior is not matching the heart. So, so then let's walk forward into what Paul says now about the good news that's, that's to come. He's talking about, I released all this stuff that I now may be found in him. Here's what he says, in, starting in verse 7. But what forever was to my profit, I now consider lost for the sake of Christ. What is more? I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them rubbish. I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God and is by faith. Look at that. Two things he says there, which is interesting. He talks about what he, he, what was lost before, meaning his, his old resume. He realized that he gained from, from releasing that. But also, he says, he's looking back over his, over his life now in Christ and realizing that even in the midst of everything that's happened in his life, he said that, that nothing compares to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, his Lord. Nothing. He's saying that the best resume and the best performance in all the world doesn't even touch having a deep, intimate relationship with Jesus. And that's what I would ask you today is saying, what's that like for you? When you spend time with the Lord, do you feel like I'm meeting with my Father? Do you feel like I can't wait to be there? Do you think, oh, times are refreshing or coming because I'm going to meet with Him, with my Savior? Where are your affections? Are they given to other things? Do you find other things more life-giving? Because really that's what we're doing in our life is we're really all seeking, the whole world is looking to find life. And it's found in a person. Real life is only found in the person of Jesus. Nothing else can compare. And that's what he's saying here. In fact, let me uh, take you to Psalm 63. And um, why don't you turn there with me. You know, you used to hear a bunch of pages, now everybody has phones, so, you know, it sounds different. <laughs> okay, Psalm 63. Think about it, this could be your words coming out of your mouth. This is David when he's on the run in the desert. Remember, Saul's chasing him, trying to kill him. This is what David says. This is how he relates to God, even in the midst of those circumstances. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. 
I will praise you as long as I live. And in your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. On my bed, I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night because you are my help. I sing in the shadow of your wings. My soul clings to you. Your right right hand upholds me. Wow. Is that, what is that like for you when you hear that? Is that when, when you visualize God, is that the one that you see that, the greatest steak, the greatest rack of ribs. God, you're so much better. <laughs> you know, God, you're better than, the, your love is better than life itself. That's all I need is your love. I'm clinging to that love. And the beauty of it is that God's love, it's unconditional and it's complete. He's not going to love you more or less. It's going to stay the same no matter what you do. He just loves you right as you are. What a beautiful picture. Of, of true love for us. And that's kind of love he has. In Psalm 16, David again, he says, You have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Fill me with joy in your presence. And he, he refers back to this old way of life that he had and the way he, things he used to look to. And what does he say? He said, those are rubbish or like human or dog do. Basically, is what he's saying. Can I say that in here? <laughs> he's saying that's how bad went back. It isn't just worthless, it's offensive to him. The flesh is offensive. That kind of, those kind of ways of standards in life of just trying to live on his own resources is just offensive to him now. In fact, in Colossians, it says, since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, why as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These are all destined to perish with use. Why? Because they're based on human commands and teaching. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom, right? They sound right with their, excuse me, self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual or fleshly indulgence. So he's saying, you can set up all these rules, but not only are they worthless, they don't even have the power you think they do, right? These standards that I'm trying to live by. I think that they're what's keeping me straight and strong. Now, now, folks, <clears throat> I work a lot in our ministry with, with people who struggle with addictions to pornography. And this is one of those times where it shows that the law doesn't work. Because the harder guys try to get out of it on their own and try to just muscle through and find the right strategies to not sin, the more they sin. And we'll find, if we look at the rest of our lives, we'll see that's a pretty common pattern. <clears throat> but yet, we're now united with the Savior, who now gives us everything we need for life and godliness. Listen to what Warren Wearsby said. This is an incredible quote. He says, The power of Christ in the life of the believer does more than merely restrain the desires of the flesh. It puts new desires within him. Nature determines appetite. The Christian has the very nature of God within, and this means he has godly ambitions and desires. And listen to this. He does not need the law on the outside to control his appetite because he has life on the inside. Jesus is better and stronger. Grace is better. It's way stronger than sin. And that's what God gives us to live the Christian life. An amazing fact, one, one author put this. He said, true righteousness cannot be produced. It must be provided. It must be provided. <clears throat> so then there's given that great exchange. You heard Wearsby talk about this new nature and that's what's beautiful is that the new nature we've been given now is Christ's righteousness. That's who we are, righteous and holy. Now, we don't act like it all the time. But our core identity of who we are, God has said, you have been made righteous. In what's called the great exchange, where we exchange our sin, all of it, for his complete righteousness for us. Who, who got off well in that deal, huh? What incredible love God has for us. Okay, so the last, the last portion of that passage 
Back in Philippians, verse 10 and 11, he says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of sharing his suffering, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to resurrection from the dead. Now, this is kind of up in the game, because Paul here is saying, he's saying, I want to know Christ. He's saying, knowing Christ, surpassing knowledge, that was great, that relational, I'm in this relationship. He's saying, I want more. He said, and, and this term is more of an intimate bent to it, has more of an intimate bent to it. It's not about historical knowledge, knowing about Jesus or knowing the right doctrines, or having the right moral teachings to follow. It's, <clears throat> he's saying, I want to go deeper to know you, because when I know you, that's where I really experience life. And that's why he says, I want to know the power of your resurrection. What is that? That's Christ in me. The hope of glory allowing him to live his life through me. It's the power not only to, first it's the power to receive. Um, Ephesians talks about that, 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 that the Christ, Christ would dwell in our hearts, that the power in the inner man that we experience. Part of that is learning how to receive from God what he's given us that we're not taking hold of. He is, we have just scratched the surface of what God makes available to us in our Christian life. And he wants, he wants us to take it all. <clears throat> but it's not only receiving it, by receiving it, by receiving whether it's that love, where it's that acceptance, his forgiveness, he then empowers me because of that, because I'm now free to not need to go get it somewhere else. I'm free now to love you unconditionally. I'm free now to forgive you even when you've hurt me. And I'm free to accept you right as you are, just as you are, because that's exactly how, what God has done for me. And that's the resurrected life. The power to live the Christian life. Christ living in and through me. He's, he's alive in me. And that's really what the Christian life is. Is uh, me learning how to surrender. And depend. And trust. It's not about striving. Right? It's about connecting, relating. He says, abide in me and you'll bear much fruit. Right? Abiding. We don't, there's no straining involved in that. We're just staying close. Make, word means make your home. Make your home with Jesus. But then he enters into the difficult stuff. He says, I also want to know the fellowship of sharing in his suffering. He says, we know Paul, he got suffering, right? He understood it. So he said that the epitome of intimacy with Christ was, was when he entered into knowing that suffering, knowing what it costs, knowing the love that he had for us experience that with them. Now, God has a lot of purposes for suffering in our lives. Everything from experiencing his grace to learning dependence to maturing us. It's part of our calling. It's opportunity for the gospel, which is what we see happen here in the scriptures, that the gospel, the suffering opened the door. Paul just leveraged that with everything he had. For the sake of the gospel, he says, we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about the hardships we suffered in the province of Asia. We're under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so we despaired even of life. Indeed, we felt the sense of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God. He said, I need that suffering brings me close to Jesus, but part of what it does makes me fully dependent on him. He said, I I despaired even of life. I felt the sense of death. I thought I was going to die. And then he says, we are hard pressed on every side in 2 Corinthians 4. But not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We're always carried around by the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life may be revealed in our moral body. We're being handed over to death, so that why? So that his life would be manifest in us. In our lives, to the world around us, for people to go, why are you willing to do this? Paul, why are you willing to surrender this great pedigree for this life of suffering? Let me tell you why, because of the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ. So here what's available to us, we talked about, through the flesh, how depressing that was. Let's look at what God offers us here. 
what we're trusting him for. And we'll just go through this quick. He's, these are his gifts to us. Can you, the question is, can you receive them for you personally? Life and peace, that's what he said we get through his Holy Spirit. A deep intimacy and security now. Forgiveness. Do you realize that you are 100% forgiven? All the sins that Christ paid for on the cross were future for us, right? They're all paid for. Done. Past, present, future. Unconditional love and acceptance. His resurrection power. Victory over sin. We don't need to be slaves, walk acting like we're slaves anymore. We have a choice. We have power available to us to walk in freedom. Again, we're not focusing on our sin. We're focusing on the life of Christ. And then we have the freedom to live. And part of that freedom is that we're no longer held that every action or failure that we experience costs us. We just, it's the opportunity for growth and learning. And of course, real fruit. We couldn't bear fruit through, through the old system, the old covenant, and the old way of living, of performance. We bear spiritual fruit now. We have real rest, real joy. And as Wiersbe said, new desire. Did you know when he made us new in Titus 2, he says that through the redemption that Christ gave us, he redeemed a people for his very own that are eager to do what is good. Did you know you're eager to do what is good? Do you always feel like you're eager to do what is good? And that's the key. We've got to begin to believe God, know what the truth is about what God says happened at the cross and resurrection, and take hold of it for ourselves. If you read on, you'll see him speak to that in the, next, in the following verse in Philippians. But let me close with this. You know, he has given us all we need for life and godliness, right? He really has set us up perfectly, fully resourced. But here's my question for you. It's based on a verse in Hebrews. He says, <clears throat> here's what he says. The author says, day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. What do you notice in there? The priest is standing day after day, offering sacrifices, exhausting, never sins, never, it's never taken care of. It just continues on. But what does he say when there's one priest, Jesus, one sacrifice for all time, took away sin, what did he do? What did Jesus do? He sat down. Isn't that amazing? And so my question to you is, are you, well, you are sitting down, but spiritually, are you seated? Because you know where it says we are right now in Christ, spiritually? We're seated next to him who's next to our Father. That's where it says we're seated in Ephesians. Check it out in Ephesians 2. And that's what God wants for us, is for us to experience that rest. What did he say? He said, they didn't enter my rest. Why, the Israelites? Why? Because of their unbelief. Right? The rest just meant, oh, I can see striving. I can rely and trust. I can rest. And we live out of that rest now. So that's my question for you for kind of leave with us this morning. What are you trusting in? Are you trusting in your your heritage, your legacy, your religious activity? Are you trusting in the good deeds, the good works? You know, God said he gave us salvation as a free gift that prepared us for those, but it wasn't to earn it and it wasn't to sustain it either. Christ sustains it for us too, our salvation. It's, it's done. It's finished. And that's the thing is, can you receive it as finished yourself? Can we just choose to say, we're going to trust God and we're going to take you, Lord, at your word and believe you in what you say? Not what those lies of the enemy that he keeps trying to convince me of, but I'm going to walk out, even if it doesn't feel true, <laughs> I'm going to say, you say I'm eager to do with good, do what is good. You said I am righteous and holy. Now, what's the most natural thing for a righteous person to do? Be righteous, right? And we have the Holy Spirit to enable us to do that, empower us to do that, to live the life that God meant for us. Pray with me. 
Father, we thank you so much for the privilege of just uh, being your kids. God, thank you for your incredible love for us. Lord, I know we, we talked about a lot of things this morning, but ultimately we know, God, that you just want us to trust you and to believe what you say is true, regardless of how we feel about it. God, we want to lean on you and the cross and, and realize that it accomplished what needed to be accomplished so I can rest, so I can sit down. God, thank you that because you're alive, we're alive because we're united with you. And we have everything we need to live the Christian life because we are now united with the one, with Christ in us, being in Christ ourselves. We're united with that one who's the only one who can really pull it off. Thank you for your incredible grace that enables me to live this life. Thank you that it's, it's bottomless. God, all the resources you give us are eternal. Help us to walk and set our eyes on the things above, not on the earthly things, Lord. Thank you for just uh, your incredible love. In Jesus' name, amen.